0: Welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing, the podcast about music and capitalism. We usually do this at the end of the show, but I'm going to say this at the beginning. If you haven't rated or reviewed us, please go ahead and do so. You could also follow us on Twitter, and yeah, like just we want to go ahead and try to spread the good gospel of Money for Nothing as far and as wide as possible this year. So, uh, thanks again for listening.
1: We also we also have a, a newsletter saxon that they can folks can subscribe to if you haven't already um we have an email address that you can write to and we will respond not always in the most timely fashion which is my fault and not
0: saxon's but like we will r- do our best to respond <laughs> so it's money for nothing podcast at gmail.com the sub is money for nothing obviously the number four dot sub com. you can also follow us on twitter at m 4 podcast. And yeah, go go check us out. Go sign up for our newsletter. Like go uh, come uh, come hang out outside of listening to us. So to kick things off today, we are going to be covering the biggest news to come out of the music world in the past few weeks, and that is Bandcamp sold out. No, not well, really. Yeah. It was announced well, recently. Not really. No, like, they, they did. The did. Bandcamp yeah, yeah, yeah. sold out. It's yeah, not totally kind it. of. Yeah, it's... yeah. Yeah, it was announced recently that Epic Games, probably most known as being the creators behind the insanely popular video game Fortnite, uh, has purchased or entered into some sort of deal with Bandcamp. The details are not completely clear, but but what is clear is that Bandcamp is now at least a subsidiary of Epic Games and no longer a standalone, independent company. Initial, initial reactions to the sale from the music world have been a mix of skepticism and confusion, which <laughs> well, <while some have laughs> what de- is what is games yeah. the music industry says? <laughs> <Yeah>. What? <laughs> well, some have declared that the last viable space for independent music is now gone with the sale. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I think my initial reaction was also surprised, and the more I've read about it and done some digging around, I think I'm still surprised. Except I'm not. I'm also not surprised because because like, I kind of think I always expected them to get to sell. But uh, I guess I'm expl- surprised it's taken this long. To be completely honest, but. Yeah, obviously we'll be diving into the nitty-gritty of the deal and what it could mean on multiple levels. Um, but uh, yeah, Sam, what was your initial reaction to the Bandcamp sale?
1: Dude, I shared in the general confusion. It was it was a confusing <laughs> move. And and it, and I think it was a confusing move because like uh, a revealingly confusing move, right? It's yeah. I think the music industry tends to have a, a fairly uh, myopic sense of its place in the broader world. And like a series of like bad guys and good guys in his head yeah and this yeah. was just like no one had something people had thought about whether or not Bandcamp might eventually get bought but no one thought it would be by epic games and so <laughs> it really it was just like oh or there's probably
0: a- anybody who makes video games
1: <laughs> yeah Um, And and so it's just like, there's a much wider, much wilder world out there than a lot of the discussions in the music industry and about this sale, I think, have taken into account. And in some ways, that's going to structure a lot of our discussion today is try to make sense of why, who is Epic Games? Who is Bandcamp? Why did this happen? Why does it matter? And what does it tell us about, um, about... Kind of a how the you know what might happen in the music industry going forward, and then B kind of like what what it means about the music industry in relationship to the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, one hundred percent. I completely agree with that. And 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 uh, luckily, you have you luckily, listeners, you have us two here too. To uh, ask those questions uh, when others are more, uh, maybe ma- maybe in like l- lamenting mode on- online about about bank Bankhead being sold and uh, what what will happen t- uh, to it. So I, I think as you me said, me and like, if- or past grief into bargaining. That's our yes. basic our basic
1: <laughs> orientation towards the world is not grief but bargaining.
0: Yeah, I'm like what is bargaining? Yeah, um, I think a good place to start is kind of to dive into sort of the history of these companies and like who they are. And, um, I you know, to start with Bandcamp, I think it's interesting that the articles and conversations happening online around the around this sale or partnership or whatever it may be is is often being described and framed as like this last space for independent music. and somehow we've like lost this unique platform to the jaws of capitalism and the ceaseless corporatization of America, our cultural our, our cultural institutions like that that's independent or mom and pop or DIY and so on. And I think we'll address that second part of the lamenting in, in, in a minute. But, like, the very framing of Bandcamp as an independent, like, quote-unquote, like, space is curious, I think. And it says a lot about how the definition of what we consider, like, indie or independent has shifted, in like, in the discourse and, I, and uh, in our world. Uh, because, I don't know, Bandcamp to me, for as much as I love, loved, love, love it, is very much not... Any kind of independent space, at least as I would usually define it. And what I mean by that is that, and what I mean by that, I think is really revealed in like sort of the history and uh, sort of pulling back the curtain of like those who are behind Bandcamp. So when did Bandcamp start? Bandcamp started in 2008. It was founded by these guys named Ethan Diamond and Sean Grunberger, who are two very Silicon Valley dudes who made a nice profit back in 2004 when they sold. A company called Oddpost to yahoo mail and uh, to describe what odd post is what a it, 2004 move I, yeah. selling something to yahoo mail right well and, and to describe what odd post is is a deeply uninteresting endeavor but it basically as far as i understand it was a way to like maximize the space by which your email inbox was dedicated to your actual e- emails i i don't know anyways this yeah they sold it for 30 million in 2004 which is like 45 million today And a couple years later, in 2008, they launched Bandcamp. They got some seed funding as these things go in the Valley, uh, including from uh, a former senior VP of Yahoo. And while Bandcamp started like most Silicon Valley startups do, I think it's fair to say that unlike the sort of boom and bust cycles and hype trains common to the Valley, Bandcamp has really taken a more like tortoise-like approach to its success. And I think part of that success was due to the platform sort of arriving on the scene and sticking around through a real like inflection point in regards to music mm-hmm. listening habits, transitioning from like MP3 purchases to downloads to streaming, but also like an inflection point for like how we engage online and technology with the rapid acceleration of like apps, smartphone usage, like ubiquity of social media, and like so on. And so I think it kind of slowly over the course of the next like ten, ten plus years became this sort of cool space for independent labels and artists to sell their music emerge directly into listeners. But in the beginning. Like I don't, I don't know if that was like ever really the intention. And actually, like, uh, it's pretty interesting because, uh, like the founders, like, there's a quote that went around that this is that they started it um to provide quote a way for musicians to showcase their work that mirrored the simplicity of text platforms like Blogger. Uh, these dudes are are heavily into internet aesthetics, I think, uh, um, but like yeah, so it, it kind of it kind of got off the ground because uh, apparently like some uh, like uh, in the beginning it was popular amongst furry adjacent music scenes, which I had no idea was a thing. But uh, please get in contact if you do and it can explain what the fuck that is. I and, mean, dude, you've heard of Animal Collective? <laughs> there you go. Rimshot. Um, also, like outspoken music artist Amanda Palmer was an early promoter and user of Bandcamp. And so I think you know maybe an easy way to sort of understand the slow growth and popularity of Bandcamp, in especially like I think maybe in like the last like five to seven years, has been partly due to something that we talk about a lot on this show, and that's the dissatisfaction with. Spotify and other streaming platforms, the lack of royalties earned from those streams, and kind of by maybe no effort of its own, Bandcamp sort of became to became begin to like really like occupy this space as sort of like an alternative to those platforms like Spotify, and, and kind of as a result, the company like has actually claims that's been profitable for the past eight years, um, you know, with this direct to consumer setup, um, and supposedly like, it actually is sort of a somewhat alternative for independent artists who are unsatisfied or at least desiring alternatives outside of dominating streaming platforms, big label contracts and so on. And you know, the, the, to be clear, the company takes like a 15% of all digital sales. And actually if you sell over 5,000, it goes down to 10%. Um, but like, yeah, it, 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 it almost to me, I want to describe Bandcamp as like a happy accident.
1: Sure. And, And I do think though, also it kind of, um, it seems like it emerged in a period of time and with a cohort of, other spaces i mean maybe not that big a cohort but there's a couple other spaces that emerged in that period of time digital spaces where like they kind of they saw what happened to instagram and clearly realized that you could take a social platform and explode it out but at kind of the risk of like (laughs) losing its soul to a certain extent and so you have things like tumblr though that's clearly had its ups and downs maybe uh Uh, Pinterest is maybe the the best example of other kind of these platforms that realize that like slow and low long-term profitability was not just a viable business strategy, but that actually it could attract a set of a, a significantly large subset of customers precisely because of those qualities enough to make it a good investment and, um, Potentially more profitable over the long run than a massive blow up followed by, like, potentially e- equally quick, like, total collapse. Yeah. I mean, again, c Tumblr, like, <laughs> that, 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 that could happen to, to these platforms that, that, that are willing to kind of, um, leverage existing audiences in the hopes of attracting new ones um, and in doing so kind of uh, a drive away that the kind of real user base and real user engagement that that powered them. To
0: begin. Yeah. And I mean, like credit Words it's due, I mean, it seems like regardless of like whether or not it was a quote unquote, as I'm calling it, like happy accident or whether or not that was the intention of its founders, like once Bandcamp really started to take off, like those heading up the company were at least astute enough in understanding their place in the music ecosystem and they threaded a pretty damn good needle in keeping with like the sort of like so called sort of expectations, values or like ethos and branding of like what it means to be um, in a space that is like directly working and supported basically by independent artists you know and so for example you you know like during the height of the pandemic they launched they launched that like you know no fee friday initiative where they waive all the company's fees uh, from all the purchases on the site like one time they gave i think 100% of proceeds um in a, in a week to like black lives matter campaign you know and like while there are or there were some complaints about bandcamp in particular that the streams of songs on artist pages aren't compensated it has like largely been favorable amongst artists and as I mentioned one of the sort of few or maybe only viable sort of viable alternatives to like the the big streaming behemoths and I think when you take a look at the historic the history of the company you know for me like what the two things really stand out I think that one like the fact that its sale is being so lamented particularly in the context of independent music I think really describes where we are as far as like what it means to have an independent space for music and artists today and to me this also showcases that like Sure, Bandcamp was like independent in that like it hasn't been owned by a bigger parent company, but like I wouldn't conflate it with the likes of, say, like your local record store, which is like sometimes how it's being described online. And also like, let's also the the real estate me, maybe the cynic in me, like let's not get it twisted. Like, no matter how cool Bandcamp is or was, like, the guys who founded this are Silicon Valley tech capitalists who have been running this company and making profit and making the platform valuable has like always been a driving factor. But but two, it seems to me to really reveal so much that the centers of power and how we, like, access art and culture now, like, really rely on our reliance on Silicon Valley and, like, the larger tech sector, um, as it's called. And this is now the space by which we expect these types of so-called independent spaces to be launched or created or formed or, or, like, controlled. And then, like, to me, that brings up a whole other array of issues and questions around, like, what it means to truly be independent and the sort of erosion of, like, locality and also what you were saying earlier it sets up this illusory like dichotomy that like you know so so often when we talk about Bandcamp we, as i'm just explaining it even right here it's like it's i'm being described as like this alternative to Spotify um like you know when an artist pulls out music from Spotify it goes to Bandcamp or remains there but actually like Spotify and Bandcamp are on the same side of the coin in a lot of ways like they're both tech startups looking to make a profit and, like, one is vastly bigger than the other, but they have operated basically in the same space. And, like, I can't say for sure, but, like, with this sale or partnership or whatever it is, it seems to be true that the goal has always been to scale up, grow, make a profit if possible, and ultimately make the value of your product attractive enough to attractive enough to a bigger company so that you can cash out, hopefully at your peak, before, like, you know, giving up future control of the product company to, uh, you know, a rapidly... Consolidating like tech industry.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot there, right? um And I think we could probably spend an entire episode just trying to figure out like the role of Bandcamp and and how what that the role of Bandcamp in the modern music like industry and 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 imaginary and and what that tells us about how folks in those industry in in that industry are, are thinking about capitalism. I mean, I think just to pull out a couple of threads of what you just said. For one, I do think like. It is important to think about like what does it mean if your local record store is a single centralized internet platform and like you said the the relationship to locality <laughs> yeah. changes there and and um the relationship to space and, and I don't think it's necessarily a good or a bad thing but it is like a yeah it, it's a different thing you know I mean I could imagine uh yeah yeah you know our, our friend of the pod <laughs> David Turner and and um is always talking about kind of like the importance of libraries. Like you could imagine a set of local institutions in like a federated model that, you know, like uh, like interla- interlibrary oh, yeah. loan for record <laughs> stores, right? Or interlibrary loan for local labels. Yeah, so yeah, it's like yeah. a set of, of local institutions. But this is a centralized, and that, in many ways, this is what the internet allows culture to do, right? It allows... Uh, an increased fungibility, right? An increased interchangeability of a variety of cultural forms. It allows this kind of centralization. It allows the kind of um, a facing of space and, and the types of, of of distance and difference, but also the types of, of community and interaction that, that were, that were spatially organized for like most of human history. Um, And so like, that's, I think it's like an open question. I mean, I also think that there's an important question here and, and, Some I think of the gut level reaction to the sale of Bandcamp has been kind of what you said, right? Like I think that that folks and we're all thinking through relationships to to capitalism and and how and what is a good relationship to capitalism in the market and what is a bad one. And a lot of times there's this idea that like small and local is good and big is bad and big and, and, and corporatized is bad. But right. like, first off, like it, anyone who's been, you know, paying attention to the quote unquote, like uh, great resignation can, can easily see like a lot of small business owners are just as exploitative um, and manipulative as big corporations, just on a different scale. So it's not yeah, like ask anyone who's working in the service industry. Like small <laughs> does not equate with good. Um, but also, you know, it, it, there's a thing about, like, um, what—I think some of this is, like, what level of profitability is seen as, like, just? And that's part of what's going on here, right? And and if that's actually what's going on here, and things that Bandcamp treated folks fairly well and took what was conceived to be a reasonable cut, then the size of it doesn't actually matter or shouldn't matter as long as those policies exist— but there is, at the same time, this sense of of that conglomeration is necessarily bad, that being part of a broader corporate infrastructure is necessarily bad. And that might be true, but then I think those two ideas need to, need to be detached to a certain extent. And, and, and finally, I mean, I think that, like, kind of what you're saying about all of this is that, like, there is this, you know, a lot of people online were like, did we just lose our local independent record store? And it's like... We we never had a local... Like, I never owned a record store. Those were always businesses, and businesses can exist in a community. Whoa. But certainly we never had
0: Bandcamp. It was always a company that was going to do what companies do. But that's so telling, and, you know, because it's like... I think that the lamenting is that artists probably feel, felt... Artists probably felt like they were hitching themselves to a space that had similar interests and in whatever, ethics, ethos, politics, or whatever, whatever than them. And like, yeah, like maybe, you know, Sean and Ethan were like slightly more altruistic, like than the average Silicon Valley tech bro. And maybe part of the branding is like making sure that artists get enough of the cut of their music or that rather like the company is taking a small enough cut that like artists aren't um, balking at it. But like, yeah, there is that side of it which is well, it, their suits <laughs> i mean like you know like <laughs> no t- t- totally totally
1: and, and and i think that it's also this is gets a reflection on on the power of brands the power of branding the powers of community and and the way that those function in yeah. a digital economy and i think that you know not to say not to take an unrealistic hard line to say like you can't trust or anything that is not a worker-owned cooperative because, yeah, like, yeah. that's impossible given, like, the emotional economy of modern capitalism. Like, walk through life and pretend not to care about any brands. Like, it can be done, but, like, you're cutting yourself off from a vast set of reservoirs of social meaning. And it's like, it's not great, but that's the way the world is. And, like, brands are a way that people communicate. But I think that, like, part of the the pain here is that Bandcamp was, to a certain extent, built by this community of people who cared about Bandcamp, who bought stuff on Bandcamp, who posted on Bandcamp. And so it did feel like theirs, even if it ultimately wasn't. And so... Yeah, because they had no ownership. I don't know what to, to do about that besides, like you know like band camp should have been like run like the green bay packers but like no i,
0: th- I think that's a great point i mean I, I like you know and not to go down like this path too too far but you know there's a real existential crisis going on in like english football and like because of the stuff going on in ukraine like there was a russian oligarch who had to like he sell one of the teams right and but then people are calling it out and being like okay but you know this Saudi owned like football team, you know, is like like they're not being like forced to sell their business. But then I, I I heard this or sell the cup. They're not forced to be sell their club. But then I heard this really interesting thing that was like, there is no good owner. Like there's either like, sketchy oligarchs, yeah, or different sketchy oligarchs, or like the two owners in the Premier League that like aren't sketchy oligarchs are, uh, guys who. Um, made their profit off of gambling which pretty <laughs> example... that sounds like
1: a sketchy oligarch dude yeah we say
0: kind of a mini like oligarch, right and it's like it's kind of interesting and so basically what i'm saying is that like you you almost like you want to you want to make these hard lines and you want to be like yeah like like uh clearly like identify your enemy and like who and like also like who's on your side but like when you actually like pull back the curtain with these things like it's exactly like you said, it's like, you probably have a lot of artists who are, and who are, a lot of the artists on Bandcamp really made it what it was, but they had no ownership on it, and like, unfortunately, that's kind of like the way the world is, because like, artists own collectives, like, don't scale on the level that like Bandcamp do, and so like, yeah, like you said, short of like becoming the Green Bay Packers, which by the way, if you don't follow football is uh, mostly, I think it's like 51% of the ownership is by the fans or something like that, call us out if I'm wrong. Um, like it, you kind of have to sort of, I don't know, whatever, get in better with the enemy, or kind of accept and like and and understand these complexities that it's not as clear cut. And you know, I'll just say that, like, you know, real quick, Bandcamp has, you know, Bandcamp has come out and said like nothing will be, you know, touched or changed, uh, on Bandcamp. But you know, I call bullshit on that probably. And obviously, Epic Games has come out and said that. Something very vague that Bandcamp will play an important role in Epic's vision to build a, a creator marketplace ecosystem for content, technology, games, art, music, and more. Very vague, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, it's. I understand. I, I think I just want to emphasize that, like, you know, I, I I do understand like the sort of disappointment, maybe, or the worry, or the like, or the uh, the, the the skepticism. But before looking into the crystal ball, we're gonna take a break and then. Do what we just did with Bandcamp and ask who the hell is Epic Games?
1: Okay, so <laughs> Epic Games, an incredibly profitable gaming, incredibly profitable, incredibly valuable gaming company, and just like a reminder to like people who focus on music, which you know, Saxon, <laughs> and you and I are, games are the biggest thing in the entire world. <laughs> yeah. They're significantly, they're so much bigger than music, it's not even funny. They're much bigger than movies. They're the biggest culture industry in the world. Off the top of my head, I don't know how they compare to sports income, but it wouldn't like comparable in size. I think yeah. they're
0: so. Gaming is so big. Yeah, nothing makes me feel my my uh, my my mortality more than realizing how massively ubiquitous gaming is, and like, I don't even like really have a TV.
1: so epic games is a really big company and very specifically epic games is a really big company that recently in the past couple years has found an enormous pile of cash through the immense success of fortnite which is kind of a battle royale style game a lot of people drop on an island the person who wins survives everyone wins the game but has but has become kind of like a ubiquitous global phenomenon that like people like people hang out in Fortnite. They just play Fortnite with their friends. It's like the there's been concerts in it. There's been yeah. dance crazy. Yeah, we've talked goes, about the Travis circle Scott it. We've again. we've talked about it. So so basically, like long story short, Epic Games company with a, a huge new pile of cash. But to understand a little bit about what Epic Games is and what they do is useful to t- take a trip you know, through a time machine. So, Epic Games is founded in um, 1991. Holy uh, shit! Really? Yeah, it's originally called Potomac Computer Systems, oh, and it's come the with that brainchild name. of <laughs> Tim Sweeney, who is still its um, leader and uh, still so has a controlling share of the votes of the company. Tim was originally thinking about doing kind of like a computer service model, but pretty quickly releases uh, a first game called ZZT, um, which is like this very blocky little game, but basically ZZT is interesting because it allows its players to customize it through code that, a kind of a a coding language that Tim created within the game. And so in the very early computer gaming community, this was a big deal. Um, And in in some ways it kind of gives a sense of uh, the forward, the trajectory of, of the company going forward. Tim, so he's got this uh, this game, he he's wants to release it, and he decides in what is the most, like, <laughs> late teens, early 20s logic I've ever heard, like, in the hall of logic hall of fame. He's like, man, no one's going to take me seriously with a name like Potomac Computer Systems. I need a, like, a grown-up name. I need a name that's really going to, like, make people sit up and, and believe I'm the real deal. And so... Uh, he renamed his company Epic Mega Games Incorporated.
0: <laughs> wow, that's which it remains until the mid nineties. Like like carpet salesman bullshit. All right, let's go.
1: <laughs> no, it's so it's so like nineteen year old brain, like nineteen yeah, year old totally. boy brain. It's the most boy brained thing I've ever. It's just like oh, wait, wait, it's called like
0: sick sick ass
1: dope games yeah. Inc. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And it stays Epic Mega Games Incorporated until the mid-90s when they're like, this is embarrassing. And they just make it Epic Games, which is like still a lot, but like... Yeah, better. Like more appropriate is better. So basically, Epic Games starts off as a game company and develops again um, kind of like a, a shooter game called Unreal. And then an engine that drives it and really realizes that they can license out the engine that drives the game to other folks and that's kind of the story of epic games for the next i guess like 10 or 15 years is them and specifically this dude tim sweeney who programs the entire engine himself every time (laughs) or at least at this point now leads the team programming it but like the first two and maybe three it's 90% 90% coded by Tim Sweeney, which is, once you're in a, which is, which is, which it's is awesome. I think that's awesome. <laughs> it's a lot of screen time of just like coding the engine. So basically what they realize is that they make their own games, but they also offer the engine for other games. And they charge, as, as it gets bigger and bigger, they charge, you know, big games, um, a large percentage or a decent percentage of, of total income for use of licensing. And kind of going forward, that's how they operate, right? They produce games. The, the most famous game they produce is uh, the Gears of War. Apparently it's super fun. Uh, they also keep licensing this game engine to the point where basically in the present day or in the last couple of years, it's free to use. You can make any game you want with this game engine. And the use licensing fees only kick in at if you make over $3,000 from it. So you can make a weird thing for you and your friends and play it, and that's totally fine with one of the most advanced gaming engines in the world. Um, but they kind of are really trying to cultivate a, a wide set of, of, of u- a user base for this thing and, and to kind of create like a an infrastructure where people are, are, are making games with their engine and then eventually have to pay a licensing fee for this engine. So this is all working pretty well and good, right? Up until the mid-2000s, when they're realizing, when they start to realize that basically that 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 mobile is the future. And they that that while you can make a lot of money from kind of like big console games, the future is handheld games. And while they're still a profitable company, they take a huge set of buy-ins to raise more money, including a big chunk of change from Tencent, the Chinese entertainment like conglomerate yeah, remember that <laughs> and use that money to create fortnite and like goddamn, it works and so the company massively massively increases in value um i think it goes from like four like tencent puts in like 400 million dollars which is now worth like 11 billion dollars which gives you a sense like four years later which is a Damn, a good investment. And B gives you a sense of just how profitable
0: Fortnite has been for this company. So So why the fuck do they want Bandcamp? Right. Okay. So And if you're a listener to the show, I feel like you're probably already making the connections. But yeah, like but like, yeah, go ahead. So basically, the idea
1: for Fortnite, unlike a traditional console game where you know you buy the game cost you know 50 70 80 bucks and then you kind of own the game and maybe you have to pay a subscription fee to kind of um or have bought a console so you can get access to the online aspects of the game which bt dubs I realized doing research or learned is a way that they could get around game makers could get around the fact that everyone was copying the games that if you make a necessary multiplayer internet component you actually have to also buy the like access to that which is much harder to copy because it's through a centralized system very clever guys <laughs> moving along four dice free, but there's an endless number of in game purchases, digital purchases that you can make, and that's driving this huge geyser of cash so this causes two things: one it's a big fight with apple apple's taking takes thirty percent, which is a very high percentage of like all app store purchases and certainly all in-app In, purchases. In-app, in-app, yeah, yeah. It's all yeah. Okay. So Epic basically starts this two-sided fight against both the Google Store and the Apple Store to try to bring down the percentage they're taking from in-app purchases. And so basically are fighting this and kind of then putting forward their own store, the Epic Games Store, tied to Epic's Unreal Engine, which allows indie game developers to create their own products that they could then sell on the Epic Game Store. So they, they they've got this this game store, right? They only take 12%. They're shaming sounds like Bandcamp. It, it sounds suspiciously like Bandcamp. And so that's its kind of maneuvering against the big baddies of internet gaming. They also push back against Valve and Steam, which is a kind of game-only store. And then on the other side, they have this massive geyser of cash, and they're trying to like build out an ecosystem. I mean, not to epit- not-, not to echo corporate speak, but they're trying to build out like a set of worlds. And so they're buying all kinds of stuff. They bought Harmonix, which creates rock band to try to deliver in Fortnite musical experiences. They bought out um, a variety of social apps, and now they bought Bandcamp as part of this kind of like multimedia developer shopping spree that fits in, I think, in, in, a, in a variety of kind of kind of obvious ways, right? To the store they're building, to their ideas of, of fair purchasing, to the ideas of creating, that the most profitable way to do this is to create a kind of ecosystem of people making and using these products and taking a cut of all of it.
0: So I think this is also related to something that we've talked about a lot in the past when it comes to just the different sort of touch points in which, like, music is like reaching customers as well. I think as well, right? Because I mean, it's like there's also going to be like I'll probably, I mean, maybe I'm not, maybe not, but it may be so. There's going to be there's been talk online of possibly somehow Epic Games using its partnership, purchase, whatever, a Bandcamp as a, and then like opening it up so that like there's different touch points to like access like music and possibly different like revenue streams. But then there is the worry, and I'm curious what you have to say about this. Is like whether or not Epic Games will turn Bandcamp into a subscription model, which seems to run many of its other platforms, and that's a real concern because I know a lot of people are uh, like that I've been reading on like you know music Twitter or whatever um, are concerned that that will become something entirely different than what Bandcamp is now. So in other words, like you spend let's say ten dollars a month and like you can like sh- endlessly stream all the albums that are on bandcamp and then the artists take a certain cut but for me that just seems like the artists would just pull their music like I don't think like, I don't think that that's what's gonna happen
1: yeah so I mean my sense of like the business model that epic has right is that it is really making a ton of money from a huge amount of small purchases. And that like while there is some subscription models like within things like Fortnite, my sense is it's not it's it's a subscription that then allows you to get to a place where you can buy more individual things. It's not the kind of all you can eat buffet of a Spotify. It's like a um more like an, an exclusive club that then allows you the chance to 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 spend again, like even more money Um, and to gain access to different kinds of rewards. And like my sense is, right, that if we think about like what, like at the most basic level, like why would Epic buy Bandcamp, right? Is it seems to me that they're trying to pull in a different set of, a different creative community into this world, right? They've got a lot of engagement with independent game manufacturer, producers. They're trying to like, if you're trying to build out this complicated world, potentially one that's f- increasingly adult, <laughs> sure, you can get a lot of people to spend a lot of stuff on Fortnite skins. But also, you might want... There's a lot of potential intersections there, right? Of like, could you get them to buy musical stuff in a game? Could you? Right, there's, there's a lot... It's just a, a whole other set of places where you could spend money and that this is already a pretty slick interface for getting a community of music lovers, a lot of cultural capital to spend money
0: on discrete digital and physical purchases. Yeah. I mean, I mean like, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, the reality of it is that music is continually being integrated into new business models. And like, this is, like, I mean, <laughs> the the marriage of, like, video games and music is, like, nothing new. I mean, like, fucking Tony Hawk soundtrack or whatever. This is also, I think, though, so, like, obviously, like, the music and video games, like, connection isn't, like, that weird, even though we all were a little confused when Epic Games decided to buy Bandcamp. But I think that, like, what we also should consider is that, in a way, and this can go really bad or really good, it's a way around... The major labels, like it's a way around having to deal. Like, if I'm Epic Games, right, I'm seeing like the way that like the major labels have come in and like push their weight around with Spotify, and it's like, why would I want to go into an agreement with these like gigantic companies who are like heavily lawyered up and like try to and like make a deal with the devil, where I can then again like maybe even offer something once again like I you know we are looking to our crystal ball here, who knows, but like give independent artists the opportunity on this platform the largest probably platform in at least like the western world for like independent artists and give them the opportunity to enter into license agreements to like have their music paired with video games and earn a, like a new a, 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 thus offering them a new profit stream like it just seems to make you know like that seems to be also where i kind of see this going and then when you take into consideration the sort of like uh rise of the metaverse question mark then it seems like this could be like a really astute move i think that the worry is what happens when you have a bunch of like independent artists on a platform entering into these like licensing agreements and then like And not having, like, any kind of, like, union or collective or, like, a lawyer (laughs) to know they're not getting fucked over. But, like, you know, that's, like, down the line because that might not even be what, like, Epic does. But, like, you know, it just seems like that could be one avenue in which, like, Epic goes. And, like, considering that they're already fighting against, like, Google and Apple, like, we already know from that that they're completely uninterested in entering into any kind of, like, relationship with, like, the big labels unless it was favorable to them. I don't know. It seems to make sense to me. But I don't know maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm like you know going I'm obviously maybe I'm going too far down the line and maybe I'm completely wrong in that assumption but it does seem like one thing that I didn't see people talking about and like obviously considering our coverage of like uh the power and uh profitability of the major labels it, it just it it seems like a very like logical move. Yeah, I mean honestly dude I feel like you uh, you may not be going far enough.
1: <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> In, in Here comes the Galaxy Brain moment. Like, <laughs> I, I, I really do feel like... Like, licensing is one thing. And I'm sure that that's one of the things they're interested in. But I feel like it doesn't necessarily get you around... You know, the biggest artists are still going to tend to be on the major labels. And therefore, the things that people want to hear tend to be on the major labels. So, like, if you're trying to make Fortnite, like, a place with lots of dope music, like... Not to like underestimate like you know the taste of like twelve to sixteen year olds, but I feel like the major label's ability to like produce a lot of the music that's considered dope by twelve to fourteen, twelve to sixteen year olds is like one of their core competencies <laughs> throughout history. And so like I, I don't imagine you know who appeared on Fortnite. It's like Marshmallow. It's like Travis Scott. It's it's major label artists. I I actually see that kind of like the potential connection here to be. Maybe like a little bit more amorphous and like not like maybe there'll be some immediate connection. I actually maybe I'm uh, totally wrong again. Like I could really imagine them not trying to mess with this community so much in the medium term or short term to medium term. But I think more broadly, the question is, right, If you've got this platform where a lot of independent musicians have found a way to upload their things and then sell music as a commodity through it connected to a game maker that's been really good at creating these online immersive spaces that have allowed people to pretty incredibly profitably buy digital assets in a set of like digital spaces like i feel like the the long range long term implications of those two things is like it's i mean it's not nfts exactly but it's like you could imagine a way that you could open up a whole host of digital commodities tied to music or digital spaces tied to music sales that's a that's a different that's the the, the epic that's you know they call it like epic four-point is, is, is when they finally move to like this kind of freemium model right is like the, the, a way to create a new profit center that they've already done a really good job at moving away from selling relatively expensive physical things and towards a kind of constant geyser of, of, of a constant stream of, of small purchases. And like you could imagine an artistic, a musical... A, like a musical slash social media slash influencer career and some of this already exists right where you're getting people to buy a constant series of small purchases and interactions and that that over the long term is incredibly profitable and that if you're getting a 15% cut of every single one of those interactions that would be really profitable for the company hosting it and I see like, and to a certain extent, them being like, well, there's this incredibly creative community that we want to kind of move towards that direction. And again, clearly, they've been open to having NFTs and, and blockchain on their on their um, marketplace, which a lot of other the gaming community has been, uh, to its credit, very anti-NFT because they're like, you're trying to make us spend more money on games and we don't want to spend more money on games. We want to buy a game and then be able to play it forever.
0: So like who who the fuck has the like the income to continue to continually just make these fucking purchases? Yeah, but I mean you know but the, the thing if you can get someone to spend five dollars over and over and over
1: and over and over again, I don't think these are thousand dollar NFTs. I think these are
0: yeah no but it oh, adds no, up. No, it totally <laughs> adds up, right?
1: But but like clearly yeah, yeah. like a lot of teenagers have some money, a lot of people have some money, and they're willing to spend a ton of money in aggregate on Fortnite skins. And so I do see this kind of like. This is one of the f- the first – this move is the first moment I've ever been able to sort of sense the outlines of what the metaverse uh, might actually feel or be like because I'm like, oh, I'm not – I don't understand all the ways these two things could connect, but I see a lot of different ways where like that community could connect, the musical community of Bandcamp could com- connect with kind of like a digital online community of someplace like Fortnite and that the model of – getting us a lot of small little purchases that emerges from like the, the kind of endless record store day <laughs> of certain kind of like you know special select colored vinyl this these small little consumer purchases um, being integrated into a digital space and like I can sort of see the broad outlines of that and, and, and it's really interesting, right and I think it's really interesting because I think it fundamentally changes how music functions as a commodity where all of a sudden you're not necessarily buying the music, you're buying a relationship to an artist. And that would change how the artist reacts. And 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 as always I think it's useful to like take a step back and think about like the, the benefits and negatives of of this type of 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 trend, right? Like clearly there were bad things about the major label system, but also this idea that like you could be a musician. There was a label that was doing all of the stuff for you. It was very exploitative, but for the people who got to make music, they could focus on making music, right? And similarly, the idea that like you could buy this consumer good and then you had it. And then it in a weird way, like the value of the music once you kind of paid the initial purchasing point, the value of the music then didn't necessarily, wasn't constantly being connected back to how much you had to pay to get the record. And this new model is like the kind of everyone as entrepreneur constantly managing and tending their own brand, constantly interacting with fans to create a stream of small micro payments within this broader system and it's a very different vision, you know, and that then to be a real fan, you have to constantly be engaging in this monetarily mediated
0: way. And it just seems like a very different vision of, like, what art would look like. Yeah, I mean, on that point, I think it's really, I mean, I think the, the one takeaway of kind of that I'm thinking right now about what you're saying is that, like, Bandcamp was kind of already that. Yeah, exactly. But I guess for the artist, it probably felt it feels like they have a certain sense of control over their branding. But it really is that. It's just, like, uh, you can follow a band or and sometimes a label on Bandcamp. And when you follow them, you get emails when they, like, want to message, like, the amount of people that follow them. And, like, you know, ask, you know, with deals. And, like, it's, like, I mean, like a fucking newsletter. Like, you're signing, you know. And, I mean, uh, but it felt, so it felt, but maybe it felt, like, a little bit more altruistic because of the fact that, like, uh, like, like I said earlier, like, the, these artists, like, had felt like, they were doing it on a platform that, like, maybe shared the same sort of, you know, desires or, or same sort of ethics or whatever as them. Will that translate to, you know, I don't know, epic games or video games or the metaverse? For some it will, but I don't know. It's interesting. I think I think you're so right, Saxon.
1: I think you're so right. And I hadn't really put that together. I, I do think that, like, Bandcamp was already that. But it was, like, already that inside the skin <laughs> of a... Of a record store. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so in terms of like the yeah, cultural yeah. aesthetics like online record store. Yeah. The cultural aesthetics and like the symbols and the way that yeah. people were oriented towards mm-hmm. it. There was a set of old And reading it understandings yeah. of how culture and how records and how music functioned. But
0: It was like strangely recognizable. Yeah, even they it was did a really good job yeah. of that, but there was yeah.
1: this new thing within it. Right. And I feel like What this deal points towards is like what happens if you strip away that outside, but keep the kind of motor running on the inside. And, you know, it doesn't surprise me that Epic Games, which has been based on the idea that you can create kind of platforms and engines and that can drive the development of a company, was able to see like, oh, there's an outside of this, but there's also an inside of this. And that inside of this is maybe more applicable to other circumstances and situations and could maybe help drive... This model could maybe be be tied to a very different set of aesthetics, potentially that could really drive a very different form of musical culture.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I think that you know, in the ideal world, Epic Games allows Bandcamp essentially to continue to run and look and act as it does, but just kind of opens up maybe these other avenues or like these other like possibilities for like the artist but unfortunately like i think as we've seen time and time and time and time again that when there are these buyouts or these like bigger companies like take over these platforms like like you said it might not happen in the short term it might not even happen in the medium term but eventually like they come in and they completely transform everything and oftentimes like Ruin the sort of mystique or the reasons or the aesthetics of like why it gained its popularity no, I, in the first place. I i, I, mean, I agree. MySpace, I, <laughs> Instagram.
1: Like, I you know, agree all, with that know, totally. Yeah, it's, it's However, endless. I have long felt like while I've really respected, and I've, I've said this a couple times on the podcast, while I really respect the band camp aesthetic in the Bandcamp mission and the Bandcamp, maybe not their mission, the, the mission that accrued around Bandcamp and the, the communities that were built around it, um, I always felt to me a little bit like a um, like responsible consumerism, right? Like people are going to make a choice to spend a little bit more money for the right thing. And like, that's great. And if you can afford to do that, that you should do that. But it, it, it always felt to me like, for the big picture, that that wouldn't necessarily address the problems of the music industry. And 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 by talking to folks, again, like, like our friend David Turner, I really have co- changed my mind a little bit about the potential for like, the potential long-term implications of like smaller scale solutions that work in limited spaces, and the importance of like, it doesn't have to be universalizing logic. But however, I, I still think that that my critique of, of, of Bandcamp has always been like, this works for some artists in certain ways, but like, again, it doesn't fix the problems or challenges like of the music industry writ large. And what's interesting, I think maybe about, I can't believe I'm coming at, at all po- this positive, but like, I don't know if it's a future I want to live in, but I could imagine a future where an endless series of micro payments between musicians and fans for a set of, online consumer goods does allow, does fix some of the streaming era problems of the music industry. I assume a new set of hierarchies and like appropriations and, uh, you know, issues emerge out of that. But like the very specific problems of like Spotify, like post everyone sells records, Spotify, I could imagine this having the, the heft and the scale to move around that.
0: I don't know. I don't know what you think. Maybe that, that's too, it's too rosy, but no, no. I think that I think the opportunity is there. I don't think it's like I think um, I don't think it's naive to to like suggest that 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 possibility exists. I think that the I think the thing though is that you have to say when you say that you have to take into consideration like Epic's history as a company, like and you know it's, its not goals. great to its employees. Yeah, not great to its employees, and like yeah, and and I mean like once again. Some of the things that I said about Bandcamp, it was like, you know, despite all of the sort of way that it read and looked and was understood as, like, this space in which, like, artists and company were, like, in, like, you know, a, like, harmonious unison relationship, like, in the end, like, it's still a company that's trying to make a profit, and I just, I don't know. I feel, (laughs) you know, I agree. Um, Do I trust that Epic Games will like thread that needle as well as say like Bandcap has thread their very kind of specific like hyper niche like I guess not hyper niche but like their like niche sort of like place in the market in the market in the music eco- ecosystem Do I expect Epic Games to do the same in like trying to make that transition into these sort of like NFT style micro payment like like uh, uh revenue streams and have it appeal to uh independent artists that are on Bandcamp, like i question it you know and i guess we'll just have to like sit here and like watch that space but it is something to like you know i yeah i'm skeptical (laughs) but i am but it is super fascinating i think what you're saying that like yeah like when you were saying about how this is the first thing that that allowed you to sort of really get a glimpse into like what exactly the fuck uh i'm gonna say a metaverse looks like (laughs) i think that yeah i could see that you know it seems like It seems like we were at this point where it was, like, the streaming revenue wasn't working, right? But, like, Bandcamp isn't for everyone. And you're, like, something's got to break. There has to be something that's going to be different. And this feels like the first, like, move where it's, like, oh, like, I see, like, a transition happening. And I think that... If we're right about anything on this pod and looking into our, like, uh, crystal ball, I think that that we'll be right about. I think this will probably happen, like, in 10 years. Look back, like, oh, that was kind of a moment when things, like, really started to shift when it came to whatever it may be. Uh, Cryptocurrencies, micropayments, gaming and, like, video games, like, entering into, like, the metaverse, whatever it may be. (laughs) I mean, I also... music, music and games entering into the metaverse.
1: I also just, though, like, to, you know, feeling guilty about my optimism... (laughs) (laughs)
0: sorry you know i have a tendency to do that for anybody
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's also just think i think also you know think seriously about the potential changes and like what a musician could be that this these kind of changes we're sketching out or what music could be that these kind of changes were sketching out could mean and 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 i think it's it's useful to look to to like the art world a little bit and think through some of the like deleterious implications i mean I, i was um recently in Miami and went to like the Miami Walls or whatever the graffiti museum is there. What, like, and it was what, like Winwood or something? Yeah, yeah. Winwood. Win, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. And gross. and but there was this sense of just like the you know, there was it, you know Warhol taken to its ultimate extreme. If like Warhol mm-hmm. is commenting on brands and to a certain extent making his art a brand and then artists whose work Follow them, you know, like the 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 who's the one who makes those plastic dogs? Jeff Coons, yeah, or like Coons following them make where he's like really making his art fully as a brand without really the commentary on brand really built in, and then you see these graffiti arts where like oh you're just brand managers of like a small branding company <laughs> and like this is all it is at some level it's like kind of an aesthetic and the but also like an investment into the aesthetic because there's like it's the the blend of like finance and investment and branding and art just molding in where instead of a critique it's just a full full full-throated like capitulation and i do think that like if you think about music history like 20th century pop music history artists had fans but they also had a space between the work they did and those fans and the relationship was mediated by these record companies and mediated by these consumer goods and that the kind of direct feedback that this kind of microtransactional industry would require you know, like the rise of fan service as an increasingly important aesthetic thing and clearly the negative implications that like fan service has had in anyone who falls into that trap, that the ability of artists to do the kind of complicated, brilliant, upsetting, uh, uh, expectation-pushing, boundary-shattering work, like if you're constantly in the process of this in some ways more equitable relationship with a group of fans who are paying you through a, t- a constantly data-fied stream of small interactions is a very different one and and honestly one that i think um might lose some of the like you know you know every two years there's a new bowie not if he's having to rely on a string of constant microtransactions yeah constantly. yeah it's interesting
0: i heard the new charlie xcx uh, single and i i turned to my girlfriend and i was like is she only really singles now. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I love that point and I think it's a good one to wrap up on. And I actually I was just thinking recently, like when you were saying that, I'll just say this real quick. I was thinking about a great album that came out last year by Lorraine, uh, L apostrophe RaIN. And um, I was reading the dare I say liner notes, I believe, on Bandcamp and saw like the number of different studios that the music was recorded at at over like a relatively like long period. And there's just so much care and, and, like, effort that was put into that uh, music. And also, you know, yeah, sure, Capital A album, we've talked about that, you know. But, it, it yeah, I, I, when you were talking about that, I was just wondering, like, obviously, they'll never go away, right? There'll always be artists who are willing to do that. But, yeah, maybe it becomes more of, like, a quick hit type of thing. And, like, you just feel that pressure. And it's just kind of hard to, like, turn the noise down enough if, like, that's also what's paying your rent or, like, your revenue stream um but yeah so uh, we'll tie a bow on this one uh money changes everything dude yeah money changes everything it's true it's true and that's why we do this podcast uh please rate and review us music by bird language email us follow us on twitter we'll see you in a couple weeks